The Curse of the Jade Scorpion is the 31st film written and directed by Woody Allen, first released in 2001. Woody Allen stars as C.W. Briggs, an insurance investigator whose workplace rival is Benny Ann Fitzgerald, played by Helen Hunt. Both come under the spell of a hypnotist named Voltan and find themselves chasing after criminals that are closer to home than they think. The Curse of the Jade Scorpion is a throwback to another era. It harkens back to the sparky, dialogue-driven comedies of the 40s, and there's plenty of fun, but the fun is cartoonish, and sometimes it's so lightweight that it almost blows away. Welcome to the Woody Allen Pages podcast. This week, episode 18, we look at 2001's The Curse of the Jade Scorpion, how it was conceived, how it was made, and how it was a bit of a failure. Spoilers are everywhere, so please watch the film and come back. I hated you, Fitzgerald, from the day you set foot into this office. You hate any woman who doesn't have a double-digit IQ. And I'm a good judge of character. I hate you, and I hate the Chancellor of Germany with the little mustache, but not in that order. Be careful when you leave. Don't let the door hit you on the back and fracture your pelvis. Woody Allen loves a good mystery. He has said that he often comes up with plot ideas for murders and mysteries. Over the years, he's certainly come up with several solid Hitchcockian mystery plots. Manhattan Murder Mystery, Small Time Crooks, Scoop, Cassandra's Dream, Match Point, Irrational Man, and others. Woody Allen's filmography has a surprisingly high death count. The Curse of the Jade Scorpion was one of those ideas. Allen first came up with the plot, the idea of a detective who was searching for his hypnotized self. Allen thought it would make a good comedy. In fact, he thought it was a good idea for a sketch comedy way back in his TV writing days of the 60s. He discussed it as a possible film as far back as 1993, when he was working with Douglas McGrath on what would be Bullets Over Broadway. Alan gave McGrath a bunch of ideas he loved, and one of them was what would turn out to be The Curse of the Jade Scorpion. How Alan chooses his next film is mostly to do something different from what came before. Alan jumps from a small to big, serious to funny, often reacting against what he had just made. But in the early 2000s, he decided to not do that. Instead, he took a bunch of comedy ideas he liked that he had scribbled down and put in a drawer over the decades, and he decided to knock a few of them out one by one. It's a run that started with his last film, 2000's Small Time Crooks, and would end with 2003's Anything Else. I don't know why he did this. Maybe he thought it was what audiences wanted from him. Alan was still known for his comedy at this time. Or maybe he wanted to clear out the draw. Whatever the reason, Alan clearly stated around this time that his next few films would definitely be comedies. He doesn't normally back himself into a corner like that. He barely reveals the genre of a film that he's finished shooting, let alone years in advance. But maybe it's more simple. He just wanted to have some fun. Whatever the reason, The Curse of the Jade Scorpion was a comedy where the whole film could be explained on a scrap of paper. And what was on that paper was the idea of the investigator who didn't realise he was investigating a hypnotised version of himself. It's absolutely wrong. You see, a person will not do anything under hypnosis that they wouldn't do in real life. Is that true? Yeah. So what do you say? That, that, that I'm at heart a thief? Well, <laughs> we, know, we know there's a little bit of larceny in you. Alan also likes detective stories. They work great for films. They are one and done, usually needing some hero in the centre, and is full of potential for conflict. 
He played around with this in Manhattan Murder Mystery, and he played around with the imagery of screen detectives in Played Against Sam. The golden era of screen detectives was the 40s, an era Alan loves and returns to all the time. So Alan set his story in 1940. His inspiration was those sparky, talkative, comedic mysteries of the 30s and 40s. He talked about the films of Ernst Lubitsch, Billy Wilder and Howard Hawks. In particular, Hawks' 1940 masterpiece, His Girl Friday. That film features a bickering couple of journalists, played by Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell, looking into a murder. It was also the era of more serious detective stories, like The Maltese Falcon and Double Indemnity. Alan has played around with a lot of genres, mockumentaries, historical war epics, science fiction, and many more. There were always kind of Woody Allen-y takes on these kind of films. It's a genre exercise with extra neurosis, Jewishness, and absurd one-liners. So you'd expect the Woody Allen-y take on an old detective story. But no, Allen isn't using the 40s for just inspiration. He's using it as a blueprint. He was making a note-for-note note 40s film. There's no winks to the camera, no modern Jewishness. Here, everything feels like it could be handed to a director in the 40s and the film would be ready to shoot. You have all your business meetings here? It's near the office, you know. Coach check girl's pretty. Don't you like it? No, it's fine. Gives a new meaning to the word dive, but it's convenient. At the heart of those great detective comedies like His Girl Friday are usually a great central couple. And rightly, Alan puts all his efforts into the two leads here. C.W. Briggs, which he plays, and Betty Ann Fitzgerald, played by Helen Hunt. The film revolves around the two of them. There are no scenes without at least one of them, and I would say that over half the film is the two of them together. The rules of these films is that they have to start off hating each other. They trade one-liners and witty insults way faster than anyone could actually think them up. CW, played by Alan, is the heart of the film. Alan had initially written something different for the main character, but when he took the role, more on that later, he rewrote the script to be about an insurance investigator. I guess Alan doesn't see himself as able to pull off being a detective or a journalist or something with more austerity or authority. That said, the investigator in Double Indemnity was an insurance detective. CW is a lot of fun. He's smart and he's good at his job, but he's not full of himself about it, which makes us like him. Alan has surrounded him with people who love him, like his colleagues, so we also love him. And he also has the Coopersmiths, his rivals, portrayed as idiots which also makes us like CW. Alan gives him plenty of good one-liners too. He's our hero. What's happening, fellas? You want to talk to me? Hey, CW. We're in on this one now. Yeah? Well, this is my case, just so you're clear on that, okay? You listen to him like we horned in. Hey, they called us. That was their first mistake. Maybe they think you're slipping. You know my brother Joe? The one that died at birth? Then there's Betty Ann Fitzgerald, played by Helen Hunt. She's strong and confident, Absolutely the kind of role that Catherine Hepburn or Rosalind Russell would have played back in the day. She's smarter and tougher than Briggs. She can match his insults and one-liners with no trouble. But she turns out to be more than just an iron fist. She's lonely and she is a blind spot when it comes to men. It's those flaws that make us like her. We want her to be happy, probably more than we want CW to be happy. There's a wonderful little moment almost thrown away when Betty Ann has broken up with her boss, Magruder, played by Dan Aykroyd. We know she's lonely, and Magruder tries to sleaze back into her life, and she dismisses him, and her rival CW catches wind of it. 
Our hero finally feels sorry for her, so our heart goes out to her too. It's good writing on Alan's part. Oh, Miss Fitzgerald, I wanted to meet with you later. About what, Mr. Magruder? Our Paris account. As I recall, that account is closed. I have to see you later, to, to, just to talk. I behave like such a fool later, for, for a drink, just for a drink. The biggest joy in this film for me is seeing these two argue, bicker and hate each other. There's a real art in these sequences. Like the classics from the 40s, the characters spit out dialogue that reveals character, exposition, leaves clues, and are, of course, witty and funny. And it's fast, with no cuts. It's as exciting as watching a Gene Kelly dance sequence or a Jackie Chan fight. It's seeing talented people pull off something extraordinary before your eyes. I don't think you know what you're talking about. I think you came in here like a steamroller and... You felt threatened by me from the first day I got on this job. Not only was I an efficiency expert and a challenge to your little state within a state, but I'm not one of those wind-up dolls you can tickle at the water cooler. I'm smarter than you. I'm faster. I can see right through you. You're right to feel threatened by me. But as much as the characters and the dialogue shine, some of the plotting is ropey. One of the main sticking points for me is the whole hypnotism element. It's fun, but you can't think too much about it, because if you do, plot holes start to emerge. Firstly, you have to believe in hypnotism. Alan, famously a cynic, thinks all this mysticism stuff is nonsense. But he does like playing around with it for dramatic effect. He's played around with fortune tellers a lot, but hypnotism is another level. He does try to lay out some of the rules, like how no one can do something that is against their nature, and how CW is a good thief at heart. There are some rules, loose as they are. And it fits as a throwback to the 40s when this kind of thing was still a pseudoscience, or at least audiences were less cynical about it. Worse for me, though, is how Alan dwells on the hypnotism. There's several sequences where someone is hypnotised and people around them don't realise. Like CW with Laura Kensington or Betty with CW. Maybe one of those sequences is funny, but after a couple, they get tired. I think Alan thinks this idea is funnier than I do. Alan also dwells on the hypnotising ritual. He's generous with the time there, allowing Voltan and later Wallace Shawn's George to really go through the steps of programming people. That said, seeing Alan as CW holding up a parcel and walking around Grand Central is pretty funny, so sometimes the hypnotism is hilarious. Alan does try to pay it off with the twist at the end, when he tries to get the audience to believe Betty is still hypnotised. But we know she isn't, so it ends up being a bit of a prank rather than a could-be twist. We never for a second believe she's still hypnotised but it is nice to see her get one over the overconfident CW. We're good. Wait, wait a minute. Betty Ann. Betty Ann, where are you going? Madagascar? Someone call the play and tell me we might be late. You go ahead, Chris. I'm staying here. What? I'm staying with CW. We have an announcement to make. Betty Ann, you have a, a crazy look in your eye. I've never felt so normal in my life. <clears throat> you know, I... In the cliché that Alan is playing in, the leads have to get together in the end. They just have to. Alan isn't going to deny convention. I'm not sure how earned it is. It feels rushed. But over the course of the film, CW and Betty obviously connect and bond. But they fall in love very quickly. It's not realistic and not even plausible. But back in the day, you had to have your two favourite charismatic characters fall in love. It's because the film demands it, not the characters. 
I don't know if any other ending would be more satisfying. We don't want Betty Ann to end up with Magruder. It's not what the film asks for. Alan often rallies against happy endings. And watching this one, I get what he means. As much as I like our leads, I don't love the decisions they make in the end. It feels like ticking a Hollywood box. You don't have to worry. I'll never leave you. It's something you don't even have to think about. Tell me how you feel about me. You're the most wonderful man in the world. The handsomest, the most brilliant, the sexiest. You know, someday I'm going to make you feel those things. Just, Just really feel them. Anything's possible. I made you feel that way, and I didn't even have to say Constantinople. That's right. The hypnotism is at the heart of the second and biggest flaw of the film for me. And that flaw is called... What the hell was Voltan's plan? Did Voltan target CW? Or did he just get lucky and decide to take advantage of having an insurance investigator in the audience? How did he know which jewels to ask CW to get? It suggests he already has some inside knowledge and was aware of who worked on the Kensington house, for instance. Does Voltan expect his victims to not get caught? Or does he expect CW will take the fall? It seems like luck only that the plan gets as far as it does. He has no henchmen and no getaway plan. And when CW confronts him, he just runs away. You know the old cliche of the villain who, right before the hero wins the fight, explains the whole plan of the film so far? Well, there's a good reason why they do that. It's to help us make sense of what's happened so far. The opposite happens in this film. I have no idea what that guy is up to. I, I've seen some pretty exotic schemes, Polgar, but this one was a beauty. But I figured it out, you know, that's why I get topped off. The flimsy plan isn't helped by some lazy screenwriting, like the radio playing a news story that CW needs to hear just as he needs it, or one of his street contacts picking up an earring that was the exact one that Betty happened to drop. The problem with the film's mystery is that we know what has happened from the start. The audience isn't watching and learning a mystery unfold. All we are waiting for is for CW to discover the truth. And by luck, CW works out the plot. It was only a matter of time. At no point did it feel like Voltan was going to pull this one off. I can't get a break no matter what I do. Stick your hand in the cup. In the cup? In the cup, yeah, yeah. Yeah. 38 cents in a water paper. Oh, and somebody threw their gum away in your business establishment. Open the water paper. Why? It's a clue. I'm picking apart the silly plot holes and probably being too pedantic, but the fact that there are these gaping holes means that Alan doesn't care about the plot and he doesn't want us to care too much about it either. It's, that's just a means to an end. He cares about something else. I think he just wants to dress up and have a bit of fun. I gotta get some help and you're gonna help me. Am I? Yes. And what makes you think that? This is your kind of thing. You know, this will look great on your resume. A suspected felon, a daring escape from police headquarters, broad daylight. You like this kind of thing. Alan really slavishly wrote a film for 1940, down to the casual sexism against secretaries, calling women broads, and calling detectives gumshoes. There's also the insults and the threats in the dialogue like the honeymooners. Alan has been in this time period before and since, but films like Bullets Over Broadway and Magic in the Moonlight are not this heavy with the jazz era slang. In almost all that dialogue are Alan's usual helping of one-liners. We're absolutely back in the territory where Alan plays a character who cracks jokes and no one else around him even reacts. 
And there's plenty of good ones. If Alan decided to make a bunch of comedies in a row as a chance to get out a lot of good one-liners, then he succeeded. My God, that girl's got a body that won't quit. Quit? It won't take five minutes off for a coffee break. Of the other characters, none of CW's colleagues stand out in any meaningful way. They seem rather interchangeable. They all seem equally cool, laid-back, good old boys. Same with CW's street contacts. They seem charming enough, but they are one-note characters. As is the boss, Magruder, played by Dan Aykroyd, who is a one-note buffoon. And the two Coopersmiths, there's no distinguishing between the two. The best character that is not one of the leads is Laura Kensington, played by Charlize Theron. She's still absolutely a one-note cartoon, but it's a perfectly struck note that rings in your ears. She gets great lines, and she's not there to just explain things. She even gets to be part of the plot when she frees CW in a memorable exchange. In a film full of cliches, she's a spanner in the works. You're one of those grubby little private detectives, aren't you? A private eye they're called, a Seamus, a gumshoe? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm a grubby little insurance investigator. The private eye's a romantic. I, I'm, I'm just grubby. So what, you always get your kicks fondling woman's shoes? No, once in a while I fondle a whole woman, you know. Hmm. You have a fresh mouth. I'm not sure I like you. Well, I tend to grow on people, you know. I, we could meet later and I could grow on you if you like. You don't seem tough enough to go after criminals. Really? Maybe if I slapped you around a little bit, you'd change your mind. I could slap you back. <clears throat> Starting to sound like fun. Should we put some music on? For the hypnotism key words, Alan deliberately chose place names that sounded exotic. Madagascar and Constantinople. It's also in the names, unusually long for Alan. Alan has said that he likes short names because he doesn't like typing long ones. So to get Coopersmith and Kensington in a Woody Allen script means he was going for something deliberate. Even C.W. Briggs is an unusually strong name for an Alan character. It really adds to the old-fashioned elements. And then there's the title of the film itself. The Curse of the Jade Scorpion. I know that the Jade Scorpion is the totem that Voltan uses. Again, where does Voltan's powers come from? Does he do this grift in cities around the world? And most important of all, what is the curse part? Is the curse the hypnotism? It's not really a curse, is it? Like so many things in the film, it's all surface and doesn't really make sense underneath. It just sounds nice for a title. There's no deeper meaning here either. No questions for God or the value of life. The deeply philosophical thinking that informs Alan's work is missing here. Even Small Time Crooks, the film before this one, said something about wealth and happiness. And the next one, Hollywood Ending, has plenty to say about fame and filmmaking. But here, all I can think is maybe there's something about not being so rigid about your instincts. This is, by any measure, one of Alan's lightest scripts. Considering Alan had been thinking about it for decades, it feels tossed off. This feels like a comic book serial of the 40s. From the title down to the femme fatale and corny dialogue. It's exactly what Alan was going for, at least. Then this crazy girl who smokes opium makes up a story and Fitzgerald plants the jewels There's in my There's a apartment. word for people who think everyone is conspiring against them. That's right, perceptive. See, the big production mystery for this film is the casting. Alan had never intended to star in this film and had a couple of actors in mind. And one of them had signed up to star and for whatever reason, a few weeks shy of production, had to pull out. So Alan took the role because he had no time to cast anyone else. Sets were built and everything was set to go. How different would this film have been if someone else had the role of CW? Alan thought he had a real leading man role here. 
and he offered it to some of the best actors around. He never revealed who else was cast, but we know that Alan had asked Tom Hanks. We also know that Dustin Hoffman turned down working with Alan around this time, and it was a decision he regretted. Jack Nicholson's name was also mentioned, which is interesting because he starred with Hunt already in 1997's As Good As It Gets. Robert De Niro was considered as well. Any one of those men would have been fascinating in the role. Alan has said that the actors who turn him down are usually men, and part of that is how badly women get paid compared to the men. Tom Hanks earns in a couple of hours what Alan would pay him for a whole film. Not so much the women, like Tracy Ullman or Diane Weist or Tia Leone, or even Mia Farrow or Diane Keaton. Those women don't get offered starring roles, let alone get paid millions per film. Alan gets almost all the best female actors who ever lived, and almost none of the men. It's especially true of that new Hollywood generation that broke through at the same time as Alan. Jack Nicholson, Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, Dustin Hoffman. The only one really is Gene Hackman in Another Woman. You can imagine someone like Hanks or Nicholson in the role of CW. Even better, imagine Cary Grant. Someone who can be heroic, as that's what the film calls for in the final act. But he's a bit pompous too, and it's fun to see him taken down a peg. Yet, he's still the everyday guy who is comfortable in dive bars and probably could have been a crook if not for his heart of gold. Alan said he rewrote the role for himself when he decided to act in the film. I suspect he dialed back the heroics and put in all those absurd, self-depreciating one-liners. CW is the star of the agency. He should be treated like Don Draper. Instead, we keep seeing him as Broadway Danny Rose, bumbling through by luck. And the rest of the film becomes more cartoony because it adjusts to his level as the one with the most screen time. I found a missing Picasso. I don't believe it. Uh, it's a galaxy optical. That he cut the thing out of the frame, he rolled the canvas up, and it's in one of the telescopes. Well, how'd you figure it out? Let me tell you, it wasn't easy, because I'm supposed to be looking for a picture of a, a woman with a guitar, but it's all little cubes, you know, and I'm sorry, it took me two hours to find the nose. It also didn't help that the production of this film was put into jeopardy when Alan and Sweetland Films parted ways. Sweetland was owned by Alan's best friend, Gene Demanian, it was a messy professional divorce that also ended up being a personal one. But it came during the lead-up to producing this film, and apparently Sweetland simply pulled the plug at one point, giving Alan just 48 hours to find new funding. Luckily, DreamWorks, who had been courting Alan for years, stepped in. Alan had the script and the sets and the actors and everything ready to go. I assume Alan wanted no more delays. Woody Allen makes a film a year and a lot of people wonder why and whether a more conventional approach might lead to better films. Those people don't understand that it's part of Alan's process, and you just need to look over at music for artists like Neil Young or Bob Dylan, for examples of auteurs who release work and lets the public deal with it as part of their artistic process. But sometimes things get in the way. When your film studio pulls out and your lead actor pulls out, it could be time to push things back. The sets could be stored, the venues in New York aren't exactly booked up for filming like they are in LA. But no, Alan decided to play the role himself, hire a lot of mates to get through, and then move on to another film next year. Alan decided not to wait despite the challenges and complete the film, come what may. Pushing forward with production didn't save the film any money either. The sets and the costumes helped push the film's production budget up to $23 million. Other recent expensive films were Sweet and Lowdown, Bullets Over Broadway, and Shadows and Fog. It's the production budget for creating a period setting. At least you definitely see it on screen here. 
The production design team was once again led by Santo Laquasto, Alan's long-serving collaborator. I love the costumes in particular, looked after by Suzanne McCabe as costume designer. There's a shot in the rainbow room where Alan just cuts to the crowd and you see these elegant ladies in their 40s attire. Alan probably used a cut to stitch together a couple of takes, but it's interesting what he chose to cut to. I also love the vintage cars. If you pay close attention, and why would you, you will notice the same two vintage taxis over and over. There's lovely minor details, like on a desk at one point is a flyer for the airline TWA, but it's their old logo from the 40s. Alan uses a handful of real locations that can pass for 1940. Take the legendary Art Deco Rainbow Room on the 65th floor of Rockefeller Center. It has been expensively maintained to look like the 30s, so it was ready-made for a period film. There's also the elegant mansions. Alan found them from all around New Jersey, Long Island, and even one in Manhattan. But I like seeing the more everyday locations, like the old diner car used in the scene after the first hypnotism, which is now gone, or the frontage of Rocky's Bar, also long gone. This film is just over 20 years old, and it would be so much tougher to make today. Helen Hunt is wonderful. It's the mark of this period where Alan started attracting TV stars. It made sense. Helen Hunt is talented and funny, and also made a bazillion dollars starring in the syndicated TV sitcom, Mad About You. I also think the fast, never-ending pace of a sitcom is a better rehearsal for working with Woody Allen than a Hollywood film, where one scene is shot over several weeks. Knowing how Allen works with no rehearsals, Hunt is impressively playing at the top of her range, full of energy, walking around, shuffling papers, being disgusted, hitting her mark, and delivering the fast-paced dialogue. I don't think Hunt and Alan knew each other, especially as Hunt lived in LA for most of the 90s, but she acts like she's known him for years. Not only does she keep up with him, in their very first scene together, it's Woody that almost screws up a line. You never see Helen Hunt's name in the list of the best female actors to work with Alan, but she certainly deserves consideration. She doesn't put a foot wrong. This is what you do when I give you an order? Give me an order? You? Who do you think I am? Some peroxide little stenographer with her brains in her sweater whose rear end you pinch? Pinch it? I couldn't get my arms around it. I don't take orders from you. I work directly for Mr. Magruder and we're in the process of turning this place around. Hey, I've been working here six, 20 years. You're here six months. I'm not interested in your ideas about turning a place. Do me a get my files, put them back now. Or what? Dan Aykroyd is a bit bland as Magruder. He's asked to play against type here. He has to be stoic. Up against Helen Hunt, who is very natural, Aykroyd looks like he's waiting for his lines. This starts to happen a bit more for Alan as he does less takes and makes do with okay performances. I like Aykroyd, he just doesn't match Hunt who he shares almost all his scenes with. Look, try to understand. We can still be friends. <laughs> we can even continue to sleep together. <laughs> you nuts. I only got involved in this because you told me your marriage was on its last legs. Well, when you say it like that, it sounds like I've deceived you. Haven't you? I didn't mean to. I, I respect you too much. Oh my God, how did we go from love to you care for me to you respect me? Next thing you'll be buying me a prayer shawl. Betty Ann. Charlize Theron is the real MVP and steals the film. It's her second time working with Alan after Celebrity. I don't know what film she thinks she's in, but she's acting like she's the film's lead and the camera is always on her in close-up. I mean, why isn't it all about her? She gets to wear outrageous costumes, say outrageous dialogue and have outrageous fun. What's not to like? 
Theron gets given all the action roles because she can do fighting and she's stunning so she gets romantic roles too. But like Scarlett Johansson in Woody Allen's Scoop, I imagine Theron would love to dress down and just spit out jokes in a small budget comedy. I bet she's hilarious because she's hilarious here. This is truly a novelty for me. I mean, I'm used to penthouses and yachts, gorgeous European lovers who buy me presents and sweep me off my feet. And yet, somehow, I find it strangely exciting standing here in a grungy hovel with a myopic insurance clerk. <clears throat> I know there's a compliment in there someplace, I just don't know where it is. David Ogden Steers returns. This was his last of five times working with Alan. He made his name playing stuck-up and pretentious in M.A.S.H., but if you look back at his Woody Allen roles, he sure had some fun. I imagine he enjoyed dressing up as Voltan. And what a choice on Alan's part. If you want a voice that could hypnotise you, this is a great one. And now for something I call the power of the Jade Scorpion. For this, I'll need a few victims. <laughs> I mean, of course, volunteers from the audience and help from a few nice people. Oh, yes. Oh. There's other returning faces. Brian Markinson, who plays Al, is working with Alan for the third time. He's been a solid Woody Allen player in small roles like the cop in Small Time Crooks. He's a good straight man for Alan, holding his own against Alan's manic energy. Wallace Shawn plays a colleague who actually knows something about magic named George. Shawn has been in six Alan films, but this is actually the only time the two of them have been on screen together playing buddies who know each other. Other times they are enemies or they don't talk. It's nice to see them as friends. I imagine they had fun together. Actually, it sounds like that magic show demonstration by Volton Polgar. That's right, that was the night of the first robbery. I don't know, CW, I think she has some real feelings for you. Don't be ridiculous, she hates me. What, what, what is the name you said of, of the magician who's, who now I've completely repressed? Uh, Volton. Volton the Inscrutable, the Jade Scorpion. Sal Fay returns as cinematographer for his third and last film with Alan. He was magnificent with Sweet and Lowdown and brought some real beauty to parts of Small Time Crooks. There's more than a handful of beautiful shots here, but it wasn't terribly distinctive or interesting. Faye returned to China after this. His three films with Alan make up his entire English-speaking filmography. The rest of the crew remain from Alan's previous films. Alyssa Lepselter is editor for the third time, Juliet Taylor in casting, Helen Robin producing. There's also returning music too. Alan reuses Inner Persian Market from Wilbur to Paris. Alan had used this recording on Oedipus Rex. I don't know if this is another sign of Alan's rushed, careless production, or he just felt strongly that this wonderful track had to be reused. Then there's the thing that Alan does where he uses a track with lyrics that tie into the plot, like the use of two sleepy people performed by Earl Hines when Betty and CW are being hypnotised. But the real recurring theme is Flatbush Flanagan, performed by Harry James. It's a nice theme to the film, a fun, energetic track. And it was recorded in 1941, one year after the film is set. Who needs rules, huh? The opening credit song is Sophisticated Lady, performed by Duke Ellington and his orchestra. Sir Duke also had a hand in writing it. 
is actually not as on the nose about the plot or the title. Alan could have chosen some track with magic or mystery in the title. Instead, he chooses a track associated with Laura Kensington. It says something about how Alan sees the film. Basically, it's all about the fun characters, not the mystery. The Curse of the Jade Scorpion was released on the 24th of August 2001. It premiered at the Hollywood Film Festival almost three weeks earlier. It was Alan's second film with DreamWorks and the first that didn't involve Sweetland Films. Alan would go on to make two more films for DreamWorks. In the US, it made less than half what Small Time Crooks did a year earlier, although it did around the same as Small Time Crooks internationally. Also, Small Time Crooks did quite well. The Curse of the Jade Scorpion didn't threaten the award circuit. I wouldn't say it bombed, but it didn't really make much of an impact. What do you say about this film? It's certainly not one of my favourites. There's a few fine moments and it's nice to see some of the talented players have fun, but it's weak at a script level and the production doesn't improve things. The best bits are when Alan and Hunt are together. They spar fantastically and the dialogue is fun. Charlize Theron too has fun with long dialogue scenes and there's a lot of them, but it doesn't cover over the cracks that line the whole film. Watching Voltan go through his terrible plan isn't nearly as fun. This is Woody Allen's lowest period, this early 2000s DreamWorks stuff. There's still plenty to like, but there's plenty of other bits as well. The worst thing I can say about it is that it doesn't stay with me. There's no memorable message, no big question for me to chew on. Allen thought this could be a sketch, and it probably would have been more fun had Allen made this in the 60s or the 70s, or as a short part of a larger anthology film. The old saying from Oscar Wilde comes to mind, that the only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. So even Alan's so-called bad films previously had caused controversy or discussion. This is kind of just forgettable. Maybe that's the curse. What I do is I, I put myself in the criminal's position. You know, I try and anticipate what would he do next, what his next move would be. I think like him. That's fantastic. I would hate to have me after me. <laughs> Some fun facts about the Curse of the Jade Scorpion. John Shuck appears in the film as Mize, the tall, lanky colleague of CW's. He's the third person to ever play Herman Munster from the Munsters to appear in a Woody Allen film. Shuck played him in the late 80s. Fred Gwynn, who appeared in Shadows and Fog, originated the role in the 60s. Edward Herman, who appeared in The Purple Rose of Cairo and Don't Drink the Water, played Herman Munster in a 1995 film. In 2012, French pop singer Demi Cat released a song on her Zigzag album called Woody Woody. The lyrics reference the names C.W. Briggs and Betty, and some sweet lyrics about being under someone's spell. It was 11 years after The Curse of the Jade Scorpion came out, and she could have written about any of Alan's characters to date, and yet she chose these ones. And finally, September 11 happened a month after the film came out in the US. The film started rolling out internationally that October, and Alan did a lot of international interviews. And everyone wanted to ask him, Mr. New York, about how the city was doing. 
For his city in crisis, Alan did things he would never normally do. He contributed a short film to a huge fundraiser called The Concert for New York City. The short film is called Sounds from a Town I Love, featuring snippets of one-sided phone calls of New Yorkers walking around. It's very funny, and it's online and well worth checking out. More shockingly, he actually appeared at the Academy Awards, something he's never done before. People hadn't seen him on stage in decades, and they figured he'd say something respectful, and that would be that. Instead, he started to do jokes. It's also very funny and worth checking out online. But at one point, Alan makes fun of the Curse of the Jade Scorpion. They said, no, this was not it. That, and I, I couldn't figure it out, because my movie, The Curse of the Jade Scorpion, was not nominated for anything this year. Nothing, no category. And then it suddenly hit me, maybe they're calling to apologize, you know? <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode. What do you think of The Curse of the Jade Scorpion? What did you think of Alan's performance? Is it one that you even like? Let me know, as always, at woodyallenpages at gmail.com. I've got lots of good comments and emails from you that I will compile for a Q&A episode at the end of the season. Speaking of the end of the season, I can't believe it's almost done. There's only two movie episodes left to go. We'll go back into production of season three straight away, and the aim is to have it out before the end of the year. I want to thank all the Patreon supporters, including the ones who have just joined this season. I'll do all the shout-outs in the Q&A episode, and the Podcast Scripts ebook will come your way when the season is done. I appreciate your support, especially when the podcast is being produced. If you want to support this podcast and website, follow the links below. In the so-called sort of off-season for the podcast, I'll get back to the website as well. There's more filming locations to cover, and Rifkin's Festival should finally be out in France. And if you haven't already got it, Alan has a new book out this week called Zero Gravity. It's his fifth book of humorous writings. More details on the website at woodyallenpages.com. And I've started reading it. It's obviously hilarious. There's also a lot of other ways to support me. And if you check out the links below or listen to the outros from the other episodes, you will find out more. That's it. Follow me on social media everywhere at Woody Allen Pages and, of course, the website, woodyallenpages.com. Next week, we look at a Woody Allen film that is made great by an award-winning performance by a newcomer. Thanks for listening. I, what about your fiancé? If you don't invite him, I won't.